19. Archibald Furry Dance at Helston on May 8th, and the beating of the bounds of many a township during Rogation Week. Our boys still wear oak leaves on Royal Oak Day, and the Durham Cathedral Choir sing anthems on the top of the tower in memory of the Battle of Neville's Cross. Fought so long ago as the year 1346, club feasts and Morris dancers delight the rustics at Whitsuntide, and the wakes are well kept up in the north of England, and rush beating at Ambleside, and hay strewing customs in Leicestershire. The horn dance at Abbot Bromley is a remarkable survival. The fires on Midsummer Eve are still lighted in a few places in Wales, but are fast dying out. Ratby, in Leicestershire, is a home of old customs, and has an annual feast, when the toast of the immortal memory of John of Gaunt is drunk with due solemnity. Harvest customs were formerly very numerous, but are fast dying out before the reaping machines and agricultural depression. The Kern Baby has been dead some years. Bonfire night and the commemoration of the discovery of Dunpowder Plot and the burning of guys are still kept up merrily, but few know the origin of the festivities or concern themselves about it. Soul cakes and soleying still linger on in Cheshire, and Cattering and Clementing on the feasts of St. Catherine and St. Clement are still observed in East Sussex. Very remarkable are the local customs which linger on in some of our towns and villages and are not confined to any special day in the year. Thus, at Abbot's End, near Andover, the good people hang up effigies of arms and hands in memory of girls who died and married, and gloves and garlands of roses are sometimes hung for the same purpose. The Dunnow Flitch is a well-known matrimonial prize for happy couples who had never quarreled during the first year of their wedded life while a skimmerton expresses popular indignation against quarrelsome or licentious husbands and wives. Many folk customs linger around wells and springs, the haunts of nymphs and sylvan deities who must be propitiated by votive offerings and are revengeful when neglected. Pins, nails, and rags are still offered, and the custom of well-dressing, shorn of its pagan associations and adapted to Christian usage, exists in all its glory at Tissington, Yulegrave, Derby and several other places, the three great events of human life birth, marriage, and death have naturally drawn around them some of the most curious beliefs, these are too numerous to be recorded here, and I must again refer the curious reader to my book on old time customs, we should like to dwell upon the most remarkable of the customs that prevail in the city of London, in the halls of the livery companies, as well as in some of the ancient boroughs of England, but this record would require too large a space. Bell ringing customs attract attention. The curfew bell still rings in many towers, the harvest bell, the gleaning bell, the pancake bell, the spurpeel, the eight hours bell, and sundry others send out their pleasing notice to the world, that Aldermast on land is let by means of a lighted candle, a pin is placed through the candle, and the last bid that is made before that pin drops out is the occupier of the land for a year. The church acre at Chedzoe is let in a similar manner, and also at Toadworth. Warden, and other places, wiping the shoes of those who visit a market for the first time is practiced at Brixham, and after that little ceremony they have to pay their footing, that street hives raffling for Bibles continues, according to the will of Dr. Wilde in 1675, and in church twelve children cast dice for six Bibles, court, bar, and parliament have each their peculiar customs which it would be interesting to note if space permitted, and we should like to record the curious bequests, doles, and charities which display the eccentricities of human nature and the strange tenures of land which have now fallen into disuse. It is to be hoped that those who are in a position to preserve any existing custom in their own neighborhood will do their utmost to prevent its decay. 
Popular customs are a heritage which has been bequeathed to us from a remote past, and it is our duty to hand down that heritage to future generations of English folk. Chapter XIX The vanishing of English scenery and natural beauty Not the least distressing of the losses which we have to mourn is the damage that has been done to the beauty of our English landscapes and the destruction of many scenes of sylvan loveliness. The population of our large towns continues to increase owing to the insensate folly that causes the rural exodus. People imagine that the streets of towns are paved with gold, and forsake the green fields for a crowded slum and after many vicissitudes and much hardship wish themselves back again in their once despised village home. I was lecturing to a crowd of East End Londoners at Toynbee Hall on village life in ancient and modern times, and showed them views of the old village street, the cottages, manor houses, water mills, and all the charms of rural England, and after the lecture I talked with many of the men who remembered their country homes which they had left in the days of their youth, and they all wished to go back there again. If only they could find work and had not lost the power of doing it. But the rural exodus continues. Towns increase rapidly, and cottages have to be found for these teeming multitudes. Many a rural glade and stretch of woodland have to be sacrificed, and soon streets are formed and rows of unsightly cottages spring up like magic, with walls terribly thin, that can scarcely stop the keenness of the wintry blasts, so thin that each neighbor can hear your conversation. And if a man has a few words with his wife all the inhabitants of the row can hear him. Garden cities had arisen as a remedy for this evil. Carefully planned dwelling places wherein some thought is given to beauty and picturesque surroundings. To plots for gardens. And to the comfort of the fortunate citizens. But some garden cities are garden only in name. Cheap villas surrounded by unsightly fields that have been spoiled and robbed of all beauty. With here and there unsightly heaps of rubbish and refuse only delude themselves and other people by calling themselves garden cities. Too often there is no attempt at beauty. Cheapness and speedy construction are all that their makers strive for. These growing cities, ever increasing, ever enclosing fresh victims in their hideous maw, work other ills. They require much food, and they need water. Water must be found and conveyed to them. This has been no easy task for many corporations. For many years the city of Liverpool drew its supply from Revington. A range of hills near Bolton Moors, where there were lakes and where they could construct others. Little harm was done there, but the city grew and the supply was insufficient. Other sources had to be found and tapped. They found one in Wales. Their eyes fell on the Lake Verdui, and believed that they found what they sought. But that, too, could not supply the millions of gallons that Liverpool needed. They found that the whole Vale of Lanudin must be embraced. A gigantic dam must be made at the lower end of the valley and the whole vale converted into one great lake. But there were villages in the vale, rural homes and habitations, churches and chapels, and over 500 people who live therein and must be turned out. And now the whole valley is a lake. Homes and churches lie beneath the waves, and the graves of the women that sleep, of the rude forefathers of the hamlet, of bairns and dear ones are overwhelmed by the pitiless waters. It is all very deplorable. And now it seems that the same thing must take place again. But this time it is an English valley that is concerned, and the people are the country folk of North Hampshire. There is a beautiful valley not far from Kingsclare and Newbury, surrounded by lovely hills covered with woodland. In this valley in a quiet little village appropriately called Woodlands, formed about half a century ago out of the large parish of Kingsclare, there is a little hamlet named Ashford Hill, the modern church of St. Paul, Woodlands, pretty cottages with pleasant gardens, a village inn, and a descending chapel. 
The churchyard is full of graves, and a cemetery has been lately added. This pretty valley with its homes and church and chapel is a doomed valley. In a few years' time if the former resident returns home from Australia or America to his native village he will find his old cottage gone from the light of the sun and buried beneath the still waters of a huge lake. It is almost certain that such will be the case with the secluded rural scene. The eyes of Londoners have turned upon the doomed valley. They need water, and water must somehow be procured. The great city has no pity. The church and the village will have to be removed. It is all very sad. As a writer in a London paper says, under the best of conditions it is impossible to think of such an eviction without sympathy for the grief that it must surely cause to some. The younger residents may contemplate it cheerfully enough, but for the elder folk, who have spent lives of sunshine and shade, toil, sorrow, joy, in this peaceful vale, it must needs be that the removal will bring a regret not to be lightly uttered in words. The soul of man clings to the localities that he has known and loved, perhaps, as in Wales. There will be some broken hearts when the water flows in upon the scenes where men and women have met and loved and wedded, where children have been born, where the beloved dead have been laid to rest. The old forests are not safe. The Act of 1851 caused the destruction of miles of beautiful landscape. Peacock, in his story of Grill Grange, makes the announcement that the new forest is now enclosed, and that he proposes never to visit it again. Twenty-five years of ruthless devastation followed the passing of that act. The deer disappeared. Stretches of open beechwood and green lawns broken by thickets of ancient thorn and holly vanished under the official axe. Woods and lawns were cleared and replaced by miles and miles of rectangular fir plantations. The act of 1876 with regard to forest land came late. But it, happily, saved some spots of sylvan beauty. Under the Act of 1851 all that was ancient and delightful to the eye would have been leveled, or hidden in fir wood. The later Act stopped this wholesale destruction. We have still some lofty woods, still some scenery that shows how England looked when it was a land of blowing woodland. The new forest is maimed and scarred, but what is left is precious and unique. It is primeval forest land, nearly all that remains in the country. Are these treasures safe? Under the Act of 1876 managers are told to consider beauty as well as profit, and to abstain from destroying ancient trees, but much is left to the decision and to the judgment of officials, and they are not always to be depended on. After having been threatened with demolition for a number of years, the famous Winchmore Hill woods are at last to be hewn down and the land is to be built upon. These woods, which it was Hood's and Charles Lamb's delight to stroll in have become the property of a syndicate which will issue a prospectus shortly, and many of the fine old oaks, beeches, and elms already bear the splash of white which marks them for the axe. The woods have been one of the greatest attractions in the neighborhood, and public opinion is strongly against the demolition. One of the greatest services which the National Trust is doing for the country is the preserving of the natural beauties of our English scenery. It acquires, through the generosity of its supporters, special tracts of lovely country and says to the speculative builder, Avant, it maintains the landscape for the benefit of the public. People can always go there and enjoy the scenery, and townsfolk can fill their lungs with fresh air, and children play on the greensward. These oases afford sanctuary to birds and beasts and butterflies, and are of immense value to botanists and entomologists. Several properties in the Lake District have come under the aegis of the Trust. 750 acres around Oldswater have been purchased including Gowbarrowfell and Air Force. By this, visitors to the English lakes can have unrestrained access over the heights of Gowbarrowfell, 
through the Glen of Air and along a mile of Oles Water Shore, and obtain some of the loveliest views in the district. It is possible to trespass in the region of the lakes. It is possible to wander over hills and through dales. But private owners do not like trespassers, and it is not pleasant to be turned back by some officious servant. Moreover, it needs much impudence and daring to traverse without leave another man's land. Though it be bare and barren as a northern hill, the trust invites you to come, and you are at peace, and know that no man will stop you if you walk over its preserves. Moreover, it holds a delectable bit of country on Lake Derwent Water, known as the Brandlehout Park Estate. It extends for about a mile along the shore of the lake and reaches up the fell side to the unenclosed common on Cat Bells. It is a lovely bit of woodland scenery. Below the lake glistens in the sunlight and far away the giant hills blend with it. Skibda and Borrowdale rear their heads. It cost the trust L7000, but no one would deem the money ill-spent. Almost the last remnant of the primeval fenland of East Anglia, called Wiccan Fen, has been acquired by the trust, and also Bearwell Fen the home of many rare insects and plants. Near London we see many bits of picturesque land that have been rescued, where the teeming population of the great city can find rest and recreation. Thus at Hindhead, where it has been said villas seem to have broken out upon the once majestic hill like a red skin eruption, the Hindhead Preservation Committee and the Trust have secured 750 acres of common land on the summit of the hill, including the Devil's Punch Bowl, a bright oasis amid the dreary desert of villas. Moreover, the Trust is waging a battle with the District Council of Hamblegon in order to prevent the Hindhead Commons from being disfigured by digging for stone for mending roads, causing unsightliness and the sad disfiguring of the Commons. May it succeed in its praiseworthy endeavor, at Toys Hill, on a Cavendish hillside, overlooking the Weald. Some valuable land has been acquired, and part of Wanwell Park, Wimbledon, containing the Merton Mill Pond and its banks. Adjoining the recreation ground recently provided by the Wimbledon Corporation, is now in the possession of the Trust. It is intended for the quiet enjoyment of rustic scenery by the people who live in the densely populated area of mean streets of Merton and Morden, and not for the lovers of the more strenuous forms of recreation. Ide Hill and Crockham Hill, the properties of the Trust, can easily be reached by the dwellers in London streets. We may journey in several directions and find traces of the good work of the Trust. That bar mouth a beautiful cliff known as Dinosoli, Liliana Head, Anglesey, the 15 acres of cliff land at Tintagel, called Barra's Head, looking onto the magnificent pile of rocks on which stand the ruins of King Arthur's Castle, and the summit of Kyman, near Monmouth, whence you can see a charming view of the Y Valley, are all owned and protected by the Trust, everyone knows the curious appearance of Sasson Stones often called grey weathers from their likeness to a flock of sheep lying down amidst the long grass of a Berkshire or Wiltshire down. These stones are often full for building purposes and for road mending. There is a fine collection of these curious stones, which were used in prehistoric times for building Stonehenge, at Kickledean and Lockridge Dean. These are adjacent to high roads and would soon have fallen a prey to the road surveyor or local builder. Hence the authorities of this trust stepped in. They secured for the nation these characteristic examples of a unique geological phenomenon, and preserved for all time a curious and picturesque feature of the country traversed by the old Bath Road. All that the trust requires is more force to its elbow, increased funds for the preservation of the natural beauty of our English scenery, and the increased appreciation on the part of the public and of the owners of unspoiled rural scenes to extend its good work throughout the counties of England. A curious feature of vanished or vanishing England is the decay of our canals, 
which here and there with their unused locks, broken towpaths, and stagnant waters covered with weeds form a pathetic and melancholy part of the landscape. If you look at the map of England you will see, besides the blue curvings that mark the rivers, other threads of blue that show the canals, much was expected of them. They were built just before the railway era. The whole country was covered by a network of canals. Millions were spent upon their construction. For a brief space they were prosperous. Some places, like our Berkshire Newbury, became the centers of considerable traffic and had little harbors filled with barges. Barge building was a profitable industry. Flyboats sped along the surface of the canals conveying passengers to towns or watering places, and the company were very bright and enjoyed themselves. But all are dead highways now, strangled by steam and by the railways. The promoters of canals opposed the railways with might and main, and tried to protect their properties. Hence the railways were obliged to buy them up, and then left them low and neglected. The change was tragic. You can, even now, travel all over the country by the means of these silent waterways. You start from London along the Regent's Canal, which joins the Grand Junction Canal and this spreads forth northwards and joins other canals that ramify to the wash, to Manchester and Liverpool and Leeds. You can go to every great town in England as far as York if you have patience and endless time. There are 4,000 miles of canals in England. They were not well constructed. We built them just as we do many other things, without any regular system, with no uniform depth or width for carrying capacity, or size of locks or height of bridges. Canals bearing barges of 40 tons connect with those capable of bearing 90 tons, and now most of them are derelict, with dilapidated banks, foul bottoms, and shallow horse haulage. The bargemen have taken to other callings, but occasionally you may see a barge looking gay and bright drawn by an unconcerned horse on the towpath, with a man lazily smoking his pipe at the helm and his family of water gypsies, who pass an open air, nomadic existence, tranquil, and entirely innocent of schooling. He is a survival of an almost vanished race which the railways have caused to disappear. Much destruction of beautiful scenery island alas. Inevitable. Trade and commerce. Mills and factories. Must work their wicked will on the landscapes of our country. Mr. Ruskin's experiment on the painting of Turner. Quoted in our opening chapter. Finds its realization in many places. There was a time. I suppose. When the Mersey was a pure river that laved the banks carpeted with foliage and primroses on which the old collegiate church of Manchester reared its tower, it is now, and has been for years, an inky black stream or drain running between stone walls, where it does not hide its foul waters for very shame beneath an arched culvert. There was a time when many a Yorkshire village basked in the sunlight. Now they are great overgrown towns usually enveloped in black smoke. The only day when you can see the few surviving beauties of a northern manufacturing town or village is Sunday, when the tall factory chimneys cease to vomit their clouds of smoke which kills the trees, or covers the struggling leaves with black soot. We pay dearly for our commercial progress in the sacrifice of nature's beauties. Chapter XX Conclusion Whatever method can be devised for the prevention of the vanishing of England's chief characteristics are worthy of consideration. First there must be the continued education of the English people in the appreciation of ancient buildings and other relics of antiquity. We must learn to love them, or we shall not care to preserve them. An ignorant squire or foolish landowner may destroy in a day some priceless object of antiquity which can never be replaced. Too often it is the agent who is to blame. Squires are very much in the hands of their agents, and leave much to them to decide and carry out. 
when consulted they do not take the trouble to inspect the threatened building, and merely confirm the suggestions of the agents, estate agents, above all people, need education in order that the destruction of much that is precious may be averted. The government has done well in appointing commissions for England, Scotland, and Wales to inquire into and report on the condition of ancient monuments, but we lag behind many other countries in the task of protecting and preserving the memorials of the past. In France national monuments of historic or artistic interest are scheduled under the direction of the Minister of Public Instruction and Fine Arts. In cases in which a monument is owned by a private individual, it usually may not be scheduled without the consent of the owner, but if his consent is withheld the state minister is empowered to purchase compulsorily. No monument so scheduled may be destroyed or subjected to a works of restoration, repair, or alteration without the consent of the minister nor may new buildings be annexed to it without permission from the same quarter. Generally speaking, the minister is advised by a commission of historical monuments, consisting of leading officials connected with fine arts, public buildings, and museums. Such a commission has existed since 1837, and very considerable sums of public money have been set apart to enable it to carry on its work. In 1879 a classification of some 2,500 national monuments was made and this classification has been adopted in the present law. It includes megalithic remains, classical remains, and medieval, renaissance, and modern buildings and ruins. A paper read by Mr. Nigel Bond, Secretary of the National Trust, at a meeting of the Dorset Natural History and Antiquarian Field Club, to which paper the writer is indebted for the subsequent account of the proceedings of foreign governments with regard to the preservation of their ancient monuments. We do not suggest that in England we should imitate the very drastic restorations to which some of the French abbeys and historic buildings are subjected. The authorities have erred greatly in destroying so much original work and their restorations, as in the case of Mont Street Mitchell, have been practically a rebuilding. The Belgian people appear to have realized for a very long time the importance of preserving their historic and artistic treasures. By a royal decree of 1824 bodies in charge of church temporalities are reminded that they are managers merely, and while they are urged to undertake in good time the simple repairs that are needed for the preservation of the buildings in their charge, they are strictly forbidden to demolish any ecclesiastical building without authority from the ministry which deals with the subject of the fine arts. By the same decree they are likewise forbidden to alienate works of art or historical monuments placed in churches. Nine years later, in 1835, in view of the importance of assuring the preservation of all national monuments remarkable for their antiquity, their association, or their artistic value, another decree was issued constituting a royal commission for the purpose of advising as to the repairs required by such monuments. Nearly 200.000 francs are annually voted for expenditure for these purposes. The strict application of these precautionary measures has allowed a number of monuments of the highest interest in their relation to art and archaeology to be protected and defended, but it does not appear that the government controls in any way those monuments which are in the hands of private persons. Ibid. In Holland public money to the extent of five or six thousand pounds a year is spent on preserving and maintaining national monuments and buildings of antiquarian and architectural interest. In Germany steps are being taken which we might follow with advantage in this country, to control and limit the disfigurement of landscapes by advertisement hoardings. A passage from the Ministerial Order of 1884 with reference to the restoration of churches may be justly quoted, if the restoration of a public building is to be completely successful, 
it is absolutely essential that the person who directs it should combine with an enlightened aesthetic sense and artistic capacity in a high degree, and, moreover, be deeply imbued with feelings of veneration for all that has come down to us from ancient times. If a restoration is carried out without any real comprehension of the laws of architecture, the result can only be a production of common and dreary artificiality, recognizable perhaps as belonging to one of the architectural styles, but wanting the stamp of true art, and, therefore, incapable of awakening the enthusiasm of the spectator, and again, in consequence of the removal or disfigurement of monuments which have been erected during the course of centuries monuments which served, as it were, as documents of the historical development of past periods of culture, which have, moreover, a double interest and value if left and disturbed on the spot where they were originally erected the sympathy of congregations with the history of their churches diminished, and, a still more lamentable consequence, a number of objects of priceless artistic value destroyed or squandered, whereby the property of the church suffers a serious loss. How much richer might we be here in England if only our central authorities had in the past circulated these admirable doctrines? Very wisely has the Danish government prohibited the removal of stones from monuments of historic interest for utilitarian purposes, such as is causing the rapid disappearance of the remains on Dartmoor in this country, and the Greeks have stringent regulations to ensure the preservation of antiquities, which are regarded as national property, and may on no account be damaged either by owner or lessee. It has actually been found necessary to forbid the construction of lime kills nearer than two miles from any ancient ruins, in order to remove the temptation for the filching of stones. In Italy there are stringent laws for the protection of historical and ancient monuments. Road mending is a cause of much destruction of antiquarian objects in all countries, even in Italy, where the law has been invoked to protect ancient monuments from the highway authorities. We need not record the legal enactments of other governments so admirably summarized by Mr. Bond in his paper read before the Dorset Natural History and Antiquarian Field Club, we see what other countries much poorer than our own are doing to protect their national treasures, and though the English government has been slow in realizing the importance of the ancient monuments of this country, we believe that it is inclined to move in the right direction, and to do its utmost to preserve those that have hitherto escaped the attacks of the iconoclasts and the heedlessness and stupidity of the Goliaths, who care for none of these things, when an old building is hopelessly dilapidated, what methods can be devised for its restoration and preservation, to pull it down and rebuild it is to destroy its historical associations and to make it practically a new structure, happily science has recently discovered a new method for the preserving of these old buildings without destroying them, and this good angel is the grouting machine, the invention of Mr. James Greathead, which has been the means of preventing much of vanishing England. Grout, we understand, is a mixture of cement, sand, and water, and the process of grouting was probably not unknown to the Romans, but the grouting machine is a modern invention, and it has only been applied to ancient buildings during the last six or seven years. It is unnecessary to describe its mechanism, but its admirable results may be summarized. Suppose an old building shows alarming cracks. By compressed air you blow out the old decayed mortar, and then damping the masonry by the injection of water, you insert the nozzle of the machine and force the grout into the cracks and cavities, and soon the whole mass of decayed masonry is cemented together and is as sound as ever it was. This method has been successfully applied to a Winchester Cathedral, the old walls of Chester, and to various churches and towers. It in no way destroys the characteristics and features of the building. 
the weather-worn surfaces of the old stones, their cracks and deformations, and even the moss and lichen which time has planted on them need not be disturbed. Pwanning is of no avail to preserve a building, as it only enters an inch or two in depth. Underpinning is dangerous if the building be badly cracked, and may cause collapse. But if you shore the structure with timber, and then weld its stones together by applying the grouting machine, you turn the whole mass of masonry into a monolith, and can then strengthen the foundations in any way that may be found necessary. The following story of the saving of an old church, as told by Mr. Fox, proclaims the merits of this scientific invention better than any description can possibly do. The ancient church of Corhampton, near Bishop's Waltham, in Hampshire, is an instance. The Saxon church, 1300 years old, was in a sadly dilapidated condition. In the west gable there were large cracks, one from the ridge to the ground, another nearer the side wall, both wide enough for a man's arm to enter, whilst at the northwest angle the Saxon work threatened to fall bodily off. The mortar of the walls had perished through age, and the ivy had penetrated into the interior of the church in every direction. It would have been unsafe to attempt any examination of the foundations for fear of bringing down the whole fabric, consequently the grouting machine was applied all over the building. The grout escaped at every point, and it occupied the attention of the masons both inside and outside to stop it promptly by plastering clay onto the openings from which it was running. After the operation had been completed and the clay was removed, the interior was found to be completely filled with cement set very hard, and sufficient depth having been left for fixing the flint work outside and tiling inside. The result was that no trace of the crack was visible, and the walls were stronger and better than they had ever been before. Sub.